It's gone. It was right there at the Statue of Liberty. It's gone. David Copperfield escaped from Alcatraz. And that curtain went down, and there was nothing there. I just couldn't believe it. Never seen a Statue of Liberty disappear. Episode 1. Chapter 1. Let the countdown begin. We're over a week into February 2024. In October 2023, magician David Copperfield announced that he would be making the moon vanish this very month. He's been preparing for 30 years and proceeds, he said, would go towards the organization Save the Children. It would, according to him, inspire people to dream bigger. He says, one person can make the moon disappear from the sky. Imagine how together- Imagine how together we can make poverty and hunger and danger disappear for our children on earth. And then in January, a few months after his big announcement, his name came up in the Epstein files and the internet went bananas. Save the Children, as a result, scrubbed him from their website and their social media. And David, he went totally silent while I got increasingly curious. There had already been very little public communication from David Copperfield since his original announcement in January. Well, I'm going to make the moon disappear. Wait, what? <laughs> Let's say that 30 one years. more time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make the moon disappear. I thought you said the uh, moon. When? Where? How? Why? No one seems to know, and very few normal people care either. But for the freaks that do, I happen to have some intel. So join us as we answer the least pressing question of our time. Will he? Will he? Will he? The pressure, the pressure is, on. is on. All eyes, All eyes are on David, David Copperfield. Everyone, Everyone wants, wants to know. To know. For those that don't know, for those that haven't spent the last month of their lives obsessively researching David Copperfield, he was born David Kotkin in New Jersey, and he is surprisingly wealthy. He owns 11 private islands collectively known as Mushakay and the Copperfield Bay. And according to him, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of magic memorabilia, props, books, which are available to view by invitation only. Hundreds of millions of dollars of magic memorabilia. The International Museum and Library of the Conjuring Arts, as it is known, is located in an industrial area outside of the city of Las Vegas. It was previously disguised as an old lingerie shop where you would tweak a nipple to enter a hidden door into the vast 40,000-square-foot warehouse. In October 2007, following an accusation of sexual misconduct, the FBI raided the warehouse and seized $2 million of cash, a hard drive, and a camera's memory chip. I think about this a lot, and I... (laughs) can only imagine how inept the FBI must have been 
at searching David fucking Copperfield's magical warehouse where everything is a secret door, a secret latch, pops up, you need a weird key. I mean, everything is rigged. I don't know, I don't know how, <laughs> how they managed um, to search it, but um, if anybody has any information on that, feel free to contact me because I'm curious. Um, anyway, where were we? Uh, the FBI did not bring charges, but perhaps in response, the lingerie store that was the front is now a nostalgic recreation of his father's garment business. And the nipple to enter? It's now a tie that you pull. There are over 80,000 pieces in his magic collection, and an invitation to the museum, much like an invitation to his private island, is an immersive experience. I've spoken to multiple people who have been, and what I know is the private show starts at or around midnight. You may need to sit through a short documentary about David Copperfield's, Copperfield's life and achievements before David Copperfield himself will emerge. The magical tour is several hours long and requires a crew of coordinated people. Unfortunately, I don't think I'm ever going to be invited to his warehouse, but I have met him and I've also seen his show. Poof, there go the car. Poof, there go the crib. Poof, a hundred mil. Woo! David Copperfield. Huh. David Copperfield. David Copperfield. Poof, there go the car. On New Year's Eve, December 31st, 2023, I went alone to the MGM Grand in Las Vegas to see Copperfield's long-running show, Live the Impossible. It was unnerving. It has a hard-to-describe texture of indentured servitude. <laughs> it feels as if Copperfield is the wicked child in a gruesome German fairy tale, forced in perpetuity to perform this act, which he does 15 times a week, this act where he relives his father's death and openly yearns for his validation. You have the sense that you're watching the product of a Faustian bargain, a deal with the devil gone awfully wrong, as it generally does. I felt insane after the first time I saw it. So I spoke with someone who wishes to remain anonymous. David is a powerful man, and I'm not in the business of making powerful enemies. Uh, someone who has seen it many, many times. More than twice, but less than nine times. And um, this is our conversation. First of all, thank you for being here. I know you didn't want to do this interview, and I appreciate your time, um, and we will respect your privacy. So uh, maybe you could tell us how you first got introduced to uh, the show, Live the Impossible. A number of years ago, a co-worker had just come back from Vegas and insisted that I absolutely must see David Copperfield's current show, and he wouldn't tell me why. So next time I was in Vegas, I bought a ticket. And from the very first moment of the show, it absolutely blew my mind, and not in the ways one would expect. Yeah. <clears throat> Could you just tell us more about that? The most notable thing about it is how phenomenally phoned in it seems from the very first moment he walks on stage. He's doing the show at about 1.8 speed. His delivery is completely checked out. 
He's just getting through these tricks as fast as he possibly can. Not only is he not connecting with the crowd, he genuinely seems like there isn't the spark of life within his physical body that one recognizes when one encounters a living human being. The other thing that stands out immediately is how much he openly instructs the audience to both applaud and occasionally rise to give him a standing ovation. Mm, yeah, I was, I was surprised by that too. Another insane thing is the amount of plants in the audience. There are audience members who come out crouching after a trick, then start to clap, and then stand up to try to goose the real audience members into thinking they saw something impressive. That fact may be the one main illusion of the entire show, which is to trick you as an audience member into thinking you just watched a show that was enjoyed by the audience. And, and what keeps you going back to see the show? The real centerpiece of the show is a half an hour play that David does with a small, wisecracking, animatronic, alien puppet named Blue 32. It's in the back half of the show, and he begins talking about how his father was in the army and stationed at a base called Roswell, New Mexico, a fact which actually appears to be true, unlike nearly everything else he says in the show, including the claim that he was... Um, estranged from his father and skipped visiting him while on his deathbed because he was too busy being seduced by global fame. In other words, he tells a fake story about regretting missing his dad's death in an attempt to emotionally hook you into his banana's magical play about a wise-cracking blue alien. The play begins and he enters the secret military base, goes through his father's belongings and finds a small blue alien named, as I said, Blue 32. I'm just going to interrupt here for a second to give you guys a sense of Blue 32's voice. Um, I'm not an actor. I'm not an impressionist, but I I have nailed Blue 32's voice. It's a mix of like Natasha Leon and uh, a child uh, or some kind of Simpsons character. Anyway, it sounds exactly like this. Wow, David, look at her legs. What a beaut. I'm not um, exaggerating. That That is exactly what Blue 32 sounds like. Okay, back to our interview. The alien is an animatronic puppet on stage, and it is by far the most astonishing thing in the show. It walks around, it dances. He picks it up. It's all seamless, and it is truly an incredible work of animatronics. The personality is, at one moment, really earnest and emotional and saccharine. It's Copperfield's E.T., basically. And then the next moment, he'll be filthy and say a crude or disgusting joke aimed at a female audience member. So it's both his own ripoff of, of E.T., this kind of horny body, but super sentimental and animatronic blue puppet whose farts smell like root beer and who claims that he needs to hug you to check your credit report. Right, and, and just to clarify, uh, when Blue 32 farts, the entire theater is filled with the smell of root beer. But the shocking thing about it is that I find myself emotionally moved every time I see the show and the illusion that the, that the sequence culminates to Blue returning to his home planet is genuinely an incredible, moving moment. The rest of the show is not so much David performing magic tricks as it is magic tricks happening around a very checked out David Copperfield. 
Well, I guess my last question is, will he? What do you when think? When he announced that uh, he's going to make the moon disappear, I assumed that he wouldn't be announcing it unless it was a certainty, but considering the silence since the announcement and his appearance in some Jeffrey Epstein-related headlines last month, I find myself having no idea how this will play out. I'm following this closely. The Epstein files, for those who don't know, were released in early January 2024 as a result of a lawsuit by trafficking victim Virginia Jufrey. The documents include testimony by a woman who states that Copperfield asked her, quote, if I was aware that girls were getting paid to find other girls, end quote. Copperfield also, according to her, performed magic during dinner at Epstein's home. The first time I saw Copperfield's show, Live the Impossible, it began with a long presentation about his plan to make the moon disappear and how the illusion would benefit the organization Save the Children and humanity more broadly. I wondered after the news broke, was the trick still on? He wasn't posting on social media, so there was only one way to find out, to go see the show again. Oof, they go to car. Oof, they go to crib. Oof, a hundred mil. Woo! David Copperfield. Copperfield. David Copperfield. Copperfield. David Copperfield. Poof. Uh, by the way, that song is how the show begins. Chapter two. I am looking at a full-scale reproduction of an Egyptian pyramid that is also a Doritos advertisement, and I am paralyzed with a deep sense of longing for a time that may no longer exist and horror at the world to come. Vegas is undoubtedly what future space colonies will look like. Everything is connected by long corridors. There is no fresh air, no natural light, no sense of time, place, or belonging. Occasionally, after walking around lost and dazed, there will be a painted blue ceiling with clouds, and you may be struck with a profound feeling of loss and desire for Earth, much like what astronauts in space call the overview effect. Most people can handle about two days in Vegas, after which the body revolts from the city's ability to induce both over and under stimulation. There is an endless sonic assault nearly all of which is in a major key and the 4-4 time signature, which is to say, it's music for people who aren't really listening. It's sound that washes over and pairs well with chatter, dinging slot machines, chaos, misery, euphoria. It's sound that's familiar, repetitive, vaguely happy, deeply stupid, and often weird of the 4-4 beat is relieved only by emotionally manipulative crescendos which create a sense of excitement totally divorced from actual experience or meaning the manipulations in vegas are endless it's built into the city but it's not limited to sound the exterior neon signage is famous for its ability to attract the human eye interior signage <laughs> for reasons that can only be intentional 
are difficult to read, sparse, small, with strange kerning and confusing arrows. As a result, once you have found your destination and are inside of it, you are likely to be lost within it. Wow, baby, you must be fun at parties. French philosopher Bruce Bigot wrote of Vegas that it is an extreme adventure without danger, total excitement without anxiety, and the absolute thrill without any fear. This, I suppose, is the allure of amusement parks too, to feel something without having to live. The smells in Vegas are worse than the sounds. Yes, there are perfumes, cigarettes, weed, and old carpet. But I was haunted by the stench of raw sewage, so much so that it felt like a fellow friendly traveler I kept bumping into. The raw sewage smell has been an issue in Vegas for decades and is complained about vigorously on Reddit and covered regularly in the, the local news. The town of Las Vegas is dealing with a big problem and they worry... There's a dedicated hotline you can call if you experience, quote, sewer-related odors. I decided to report the chronic fart smell. Was it a regular occurrence, I asked. The operator defensively replied that all cities smell. But Vegas is different from most other cities. It is a manufactured oasis in the middle of the desert dedicated to hijacking the limbic system of consenting adults. It is a miracle and a curse. Underneath the city are a tangle of tunnels to manage the occasional flash floods. Those tunnels are inhabited by hundreds of homeless people. When it rains, people drown and people die. But above ground, traipsing on top the wretched and bombarded with fecal particles, I'm here in Vegas to see David Copperfield perform magic. I upgrade our tickets to include a meet and greet after the show in the hopes that Mr. Copperfield will be so enticed by my enchanting personality and deep, dorky knowledge of magic that he will invite me back to his warehouse for an extended evening of wonder. The show is exactly the same as the first time I saw it, except there is no mention of Save the Children and no mention of the month of February. The moon illusion is still advertised, but the only date given is the year 2024. As of this recording, Mr. Copperfield's Instagram profile still states February, paired with a fingers crossed emoji. And a few days ago, sports reporter Jim Nance claimed on a podcast that Mr. Copperfield brought him to the desert at two in the morning and made the moon disappear. This is the only semi-reliable update in months, so I suppose it's still on. We are waiting with bated breath. Chapter 3, Who's Moon? Arch Mission is an organization dedicated to backing up human knowledge in space, in outer space. David Copperfield is a board member, and the mechanics behind his illusions, making the statue of liberty disappear, for example, walking through the Great Wall of China, and so on and so forth, his secrets were sent in 2019 to space on the Beresheet lander as part of Arch Mission's 
Lunar Library Project. The spacecraft's gyroscope failed and as a result crash landed on the moon, but the library is believed to still be intact. Some other knowledge dumped on the moon include the entirety of English Wikipedia and 30,000 books. The information is stored on a nickel-based archival technology called nanofiche, like microfiche, but able to withstand the harsh conditions of space. I spoke with the best-selling author, Rebecca Boyle, about her new book, Our Moon. Yeah, so I'm Rebecca Boyle. I'm a science journalist and author of a new book called Our Moon, How Earth's Celestial Companion Transformed the Planet, Guided Evolution, and Made Us Who We Are. Um, congratulations anyway. on your, um, you get, you're on the bestseller list, right? Thanks. For- yeah, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> that was a large surprise yesterday. Yeah. Um, when did you start thinking about the moon and why? I, I guess I've thought about it since I was a kid. Um, I've always sort of been just fond of it and cared about it. And I think a lot of kids do. A lot of kids grow up reading bedtime stories where the moon is like either in it or it's a central character or it's like, you know, your friend or something like that. And I never really lost that, I guess. Um, I remember being in fifth grade and sitting on the floor of my school library, listening to a vinyl record of the Apollo 11 landing and just being like kind of blown away that this happened, that they were like walking up there and this, this can't be real. You know, it took my breath away. And I think I never really lost that sense of awe about it. Like in the old sense of the word where I was just sort of like, Oh, you know, amazed and just sort of, obsessed I guess and um I wanted to write this book initially because I wanted it to be an appreciation like this is the moon is really special you know I write about astronomy all the time and for astronomers the moon is somewhat of an obstacle <laughs> like it's really bright it can be really annoying if you're trying to study distant galaxies and you know quasars and things like that and I'm always like defending it like no the moon is pretty and it's special and it's interesting and we should care about it more you know And that's sort of how this book came about. But then as I started writing it, it was more like, no, the moon is like really important. The moon is really responsible for so many things that have happened here. So it turned into more than an an appreciation. And now it's more like we would not be here without it. This is an argument that I'm making. Yeah. Can we can we get into that argument about how we kind of grew up with the moon and our relationship to the moon? Yeah. I mean, I think. I started looking at this from the earliest human history that I could find, which was just like paleo anthropology. And it came out looking like we will use the moon for timekeeping. You know, that was really an almost obvious sort of connection to it. We use the moon for calendars. I mean, the word month comes from the moon. It's an old English word, month, And we still use that term. We divided time according to lunar cycles. Everybody on earth, every culture across time and space on this planet used the moon in that way. And some still do. I mean, the, the Jewish calendar is still a lunar calendar. You know, the Islamic calendar is still a lunar calendar. The Chinese calendar is still a lunisolar calendar, which is sort of a combination of lunar and solar time. The lunar new year is February 10th, you know, and that's the biggest celebration in the Chinese calendar. And so we've, we've always sort of used it in that way. And that felt like an obvious entry point to me about our relationship with the moon. But then I realized it's so much deeper than that. And it's so much more profound than that, both before and after our sense of time. So initially, I started the book in 
kind of 30,000 years ago, you know, cave paintings and like bone shards that were used as lunar device, lunar timekeeping devices. But then I realized that, you know, the, the tide and the gravitational effect and the light of the moon actually has a really profound effect on biology also. And I came at this in part because I found an interesting paper from the 60s on corals and how coral growth rings can be used, kind of like tree rings, where you can date their ages based on these growth rings. And it turned out that 400 million years ago, 410 million years ago, the day was 20 hours long as opposed to 24 because the Earth's rotation is actually slowing down because of the moon. And I thought about that and was like, well, if it was if the day was shorter, the moon was probably closer because the reason the day is lengthening is because the moon is moving away from us and it's been moving away from us ever since the day that it was made. And I wondered about that. It was like, if it was closer a long time ago, it would have been brighter and bigger in the sky. It would have had a way more powerful tidal effect. And it did. And it turns out that the tide 400 to 300 million years ago, which is this window of time, when fish were starting to come out of the water and walk onto land, the moon was a lot closer and it would have been creating really high, really powerful tides. And this was happening at the same time Pangaea was starting to form, the sort of famous supercontinent that gives rise to the dinosaurs. And this means that ocean basins were closing. And so the tide was really extreme in a few areas of ancient earth. And those areas are where we find these early fossils that are the first sort of transitional animals between fish breathing in the water and living in the water and vertebrates breathing on land and walking on land the way that we all do now. And these are the, these are the ancestors of every backbone animal on earth, these first tetrapods. And the moon is the probably the reason they walked on the land in the first place. If the tide is going out or coming in, you know, imagine you're a fish, a bony fish, so like really thick fins where you can like propel yourself through the water and the water is receding at, you know, a few feet per minute, because this would be a huge tidal effect, like 80 feet of water between high and low tide. So you have to be able to get out of there <laughs> or, you know, learn how to breathe the air or walk on the land. And the fish that did this and survived to pass on their genes are the ones that evolved into our ancestors. And I think the moon's role in this has not been fully understood and I mean, some of this research is really recent. This was scientific papers from 2020, 2022 that are in my book. But this is a pretty new, even though it's logical, it makes a lot of sense intuitively that this would be a thing that happened. No one really connected these dots until really recently. Yeah, that's pretty astonishing. <clears throat> um, you said something that I think for, for non-scientists is a little bit horrifying, Um you mentioned that the moon is moving away from us. <laughs> Do you want to elaborate on that and what that means? Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to report that, uh, yeah, the moon is leaving. <laughs> um, it is just spiraling away forever and it will be forever. Um, eventually it will be far enough away that it will no longer be able to totally eclipse the sun, which will be sad, but that's like, you know, tens of millions of years from now. And that's long after humans have like been uploaded into AI systems or something. So we don't need to worry about that. But 
Um, but yeah, it's, it's moving away. And this is because of the tide, like the tidal interaction is so complicated. It's so much more involved than I ever understood before I tried to write this book. And I don't claim to fully understand it because it's such detailed physics, but like the entire planet is sloshing around the entire moon is sort of like sloshing around the entire time as they orbit each other. Cause really the moon doesn't technically orbit the earth directly. They both orbit each other's common center of gravity, which is a strange phenomenon. And this relationship gives rise to the, what we experience as the tide. And, you know, it's, for you on the beach or for me on the beach, it's more like, Oh, I got to move my beach towel now because the tide's coming in. Like this is kind of annoying, but it's so much more profound than that. The entire ocean is like sloshing back and forth throughout the entire day on all sides of earth. We have one high and one low tide every six hours. Most in most places. So there's two high and two low tides a day because on the side opposite the moon, the same thing is happening because this like, kind of violent sloshing and so all of this momentum is changing the movement of both the earth and the moon and this is why our day is slowing down and the day is slowing down also because the moon is moving away it's complicated to explain this but this has to do with this concept called angular momentum and it's a value in physics that describes the movement of systems and it's always conserved. Like this is a rule of physics, like the laws of motion that like it is always conserved. So if, if something is slowing down, the earth is slowing down, something else is speeding up or getting a further distance from us. And this is what's happening to the moon. So it's as it formed, it started spiraling around earth. Earth was spiraling around the sun and they kind of are still spiraling, but further and further away from each other. And so it's slow. I mean, this is happening at the rate roughly at which like your fingernails grow. <laughs> so over the course of a year, it's like not very much, but we actually measured this during Apollo. The astronauts put mirrors on the moon, these little reflectors. And still to this day, a laser on earth points at those mirrors and bounces back. And we measure the time it takes for that to return. And this gives us a value for it's called Delta T, which is like the change in the time that the Earth's day takes to rotate. And this has to do with the lunar distance and how it's increasing over time. But it's not really like a problem for us now. I think in, you know, millions and millions of years from now, it will have some effects on Earth. But for now, it's fine. <laughs> we don't need to be that worried. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned the mirrors on space, on the moon. Um what, what else is on the moon? So everything we've ever brought up there is still there. And um, other than that, nothing. <laughs> the moon is a barren, desolate wasteland. There's no atmosphere. There's no wind. There's no rain. There's no color, really. The whole thing is basically a silvery rock. And all that is on it is dust and the remains of the Apollo missions. So like the little legs of the landers that brought humans to the surface, they had to use the capsule they landed in to take back off, to launch back off into the command module that they used to fly home. So the lander legs are still sitting there. There's still a flag or two. There's still a couple rovers and all the astronauts trash. <laughs> they just like left there. Um, but that's about it. I mean, there's, there's nothing else on the moon. I had read that um, David 
Copperfield had sent his magic tricks to the moon in a um, Israeli space mission that crash landed. Did you hear about that? Yes. Do you know anything about? Yes. Is that true? Like I read that headline and I was like, what? People are just sending stuff. I don't to know. The moon? I'm not sure what he said, but yeah, that people are sending stuff to the moon all the time, and a lot of times they fail. So yeah, the Israeli lander Bereshit was supposed to land and you know bring the Israeli flag and a few mementos, but it crashed because they had an issue with the sort of afterburners. Like you have to slow down to land on the moon safely, and that didn't work correctly, and so the whole thing just kind of spectacularly crashed into the moon. Japan crashed something into the moon last year. They just recently became the fifth country to safely land, but the newest lander landed kind of belly up. So it was a success-ish. I think they should be happy that it landed safely enough that they could communicate with it, but it's not getting enough power because the solar panels are upside down. So they're hoping that as the moon rotates around the Earth and the lunar month, it will get more sun on the solar panels and they can maybe wake it back up. But The newest thing that's happening is these commercial landers are making their way. There was one in early January that launched for the moon, but it had a fuel issue right after launch. So it didn't make it. It came back to earth right up in the atmosphere. This was called Peregrine. It was the first privately built lunar lander. The second one is launching sometime in February. And about a week after it launches, it will land in the South pole region of the moon. And this is carrying a bunch of science experiments for NASA, but also a bunch of sculptures of the moon made by the artist Jeff Koons, which will stay on the moon forever. Ugh. Also time capsules that have like a record of stories narrated by people. Um, there are a bunch of other little artifacts and people are intending to send human cremated remains up there, which has caused some controversy. And the thing is that there's no regulation about this. Like there's no one, really in charge of saying what you can send or not. And so anybody who has the ability to send something to the moon can send whatever they want, (laughs) basically whatever a rocket can hold. And that's going to be interesting, I think in the next few months to see what people put up there. So those were the first private, um, private attempts at touching the moon, non-governmental. Yeah. These are, non-governmental touching the moon yeah i mean yeah touching the moon and reaching out to it and just becoming part of it i guess um this is the first time this has happened with private money as opposed to just like government sponsored you know like most of the things that have reached the moon so far have been these really expensive nationally funded efforts and the Bereshit one was also privately they had private money for the israeli one but it was also government sponsored and um, it didn't make it. So it crashed. So it is there, I guess, in a sense, but it didn't like succeed in the way they were hoping it would. And these commercial landers, they're hoping will succeed because they're carrying stuff on behalf of NASA, but also other government agencies. Like the one that crashed, well, it burned up in the atmosphere in January, was also carrying a little rover from the Mexican Space Agency. It had something called DHL Moonbox, which was like DHL, the shipping company, like put a bunch of stuff in a little capsule. And it was like a piece of Mount Everest and postcards and kind of some random sort of time capsule stuff that DHL sponsored. And 
these were all they're raising money from private companies and just investors that want to be part of this so <clears throat> what, what why would a private investor uh want to be involved with uh dumping some a box of stuff on the moon <laughs> i mean sometimes it's for just the fact that it's cool to do it and like oh let's look what we can do look what our ingenuity can pay for you know but i think there's also hope that there will eventually be this lunar economy that people will start sending stuff up there and the more that goes up there you need services for that stuff and nasa has been very clear they want to send humans back up there and if that happens then we need resources for them and if you want to have astronauts you know they need a lot of supplies to be able to be there safely so if you can use a cargo provider to send some of that stuff that takes the pressure off NASA, takes the funding off of NASA. And some of it is that, you know, the space program that we've had since Apollo has been really subject to political wins. So whoever is in the white house kind of makes the decisions about where NASA is going to go, what they're going to do. And that can be frustrating for scientists who want to be able to keep doing their work despite any political pressure. So I think the hope has been the last couple of years that, if we create this like lunar economy that's sort of separate from government funding, then it's, it's hardened against political whims. You know, people will still be going up there no matter what NASA does. So then NASA can hitch a ride or, you know, pay a private lander to fly up a Rover as opposed to just having huge government contracts to do that work. But we'll see. I mean, some people hope to mine for resources up there and things like helium three, which is like a little far afield, but is this volatile form of helium that could be used to power a nuclear reactor. There's also a lot of water on the moon mm. and not like in lakes, like we imagine on earth, but probably in like hydrated minerals. So you have to like literally squeeze water from a stone. But if there is a lot of water up there, that could be used for either human use, but more likely for rocket fuel. Like you could split up the hydrogen and oxygen atoms and refine that into rocket fuel, which means it'd be easier to get back to Earth or even to Mars or somewhere else if you can use the moon as like a launch pad. How do you, how do you feel about all of this um, space, deep space capitalism? I mean, I feel like on the one hand, technological innovation is great and then on the other hand i feel like a, a deep sense of dread hearing about this yeah that's basically how i feel um i think i'm excited in somebody that you know I, I think the moon is super interesting i think we should be up there i think we should go explore it i think we should try to learn more about it which is a way of learning more about ourselves and our planet and how we all evolved how we got here i think there are ways to do that responsibly and safely and I think that that's not necessarily in the top of people's minds right now when they talk about going to the moon. It's a lot more like, yeah, like, let's go and let's mine some stuff. And like, it's better to do it up there than on Earth. And I just hope that as we go back in the next year to two years to five years with eventually human crews here in a couple years, that we just think about what we're doing up there and why. You know, some of the language around lunar exploration sounds really familiar as somebody who grows up, is growing up and grew up in the Mountain West. And it sounds a lot like the sort of ideas people had about Western expansion in the U.S. and the sort of colonial mindset that's like, oh, we got to spread our ideas everywhere. And like, this is the best. And I just hope that people sort of take a step back and think about that. And while there are no cultures on the moon that would be exploited, 
it doesn't belong to anyone. It belongs to everyone. And I think anything we do up there really demands the consideration and involvement of everyone because it doesn't belong to NASA. It doesn't belong to the U S it doesn't belong to China or Russia or your India, you know, all the spacefaring countries that have, have been up there. We need to be a little more thoughtful about what we're doing up there and why we want to be up there. And I think there are ways to do that that are not necessarily happening right now. <clears throat> yeah, it feels a little bit cav- cavalier, um, which reminds me of David Copperfield and his <laughs> plan to make the moon vanish in sometime in 2024, I think in February 2024. And I guess that's what got me thinking about the moon. And um, I wonder if the moon were to vanish, what's uh, what would happen? If it just poof disappeared, actually, I mean, there's a couple different ways to answer this. So like, you know, if he makes the moon disappear as like an amazing illusion, then its light would be gone. And that would be a problem for a whole bunch of animals. So we know corals use a full moon to time their mating and their reproduction cycles. And so if the moon just wasn't there anymore... Maybe would corals not release their sperm and eggs that night? And then you lose a whole generation of new coral animals? I don't know. Also, animals like wildebeest use the moon to time their reproduction cycles and their migration because they need calves to be born at the right time of year to be able to be strong enough to make this huge migration. This is like one of the most stupendous migrations on Earth. Wildebeest moving across the Serengeti. And if their calves are too small to make the journey, they'll be eaten by crocodiles or, the, you know, they won't survive. They'll be hunted. And so wildebeest know that when the full moon occurs three cycles after the solstice, that's when they have their have their young. And so somehow they're able to figure this out and time the their mating to be able to give birth at the right time to migrate. So if the moon wasn't there, would wildebeest know when to get it on? I don't know. Um, And so there's a lot of effects that happen because of just the light of the moon, but there are also a lot of effects that happen from the gravity of the moon. And so if it was gone physically as well as, you know, optically, we would have some real problems. And I think the, the most obvious thing would be the tide. Like you'd be on a, a shoreline and the high tide would not come in or would come in, you know, a lot lower than you expect because the sun still plays a role in the tides and the oceans, but it's, it's much less pronounced than the moon. And over time, this would be a problem for a lot of animals because we were talking before about how the tide really doesn't just like bring the water up a little higher and a little lower. It like sloshes the entire ocean from within. It's like a tsunami. It starts from the bottom. And so if you don't have that action, all these nutrients would sort of sink to the bottom of the ocean and just sit there and be silt as opposed to food for the whole chain of marine life. So over time, the oceans would have this stillness that would probably cause a lot of problems. It would cause even extinctions possibly in the ocean it would it would disrupt the entire chain of life in the oceans and that would have effects on the atmosphere and i think over longer time scales 
the effects on the atmosphere would be really pronounced because one of the things the moon does is sort of safeguard the tilt of earth. So we have, you know, we're tilted 23 and a half degrees on our axis, which is why we have seasons. And the moon keeps that tilt pretty stable over time, over millennia. If it didn't do that, our planet would wobble a lot more on its axis because of the gravity of Jupiter, for instance, would sort of like push earth around like a playground bully, <laughs> like tip it over. So over millions of years, earth's axis would tilt maybe 40 degrees, maybe even 80 degrees. People have looked into this to try to understand what would happen if we didn't have the moon balancing us basically. And if we tilt our axis at 80 degrees, I mean, think of the polar ice caps, being where the equator is now, you know, they would melt and that would have huge effects on the whole climate of earth and the atmosphere of earth. And I think over millennia, you know, that would really have a major effect on how life can operate here. If you have this, it's, you know, absurdly dramatic shift in the way the climate functions and the whole planet melts or the whole planet freezes because of this, that would be a lot harder for life to adapt. So we'd have some real problems. <laughs> If the moon was yeah, gone. It sounds like it would suck. It would suck. And it would be sad. I think it would just be the sky would be empty. It would feel lonely. I think the moon can sneak up on you when it's sort of in the newer phases or the waning phases of its cycle where it's a small crescent. Maybe you might not notice it under some trees at night at dusk. But the full moon is unmistakable. It's so bright. It dominates the entire night. And I think it would be really apparent if it was just vanished. And I think it would be very lonely. Yeah, and I guess on that note, what do you think our responsibility is towards the moon? And how can we as, um, you know, as citizens sort of <clears throat> make sure we're taking care of taking care of it? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, the upshot of my whole book is like, what do we owe the moon now after this whole history? If it's guided every human enterprise since the beginning of life, you know, what are we going to do now? Are we going to really just like trample up there and like strip mine and, you know, plant our flags that are these artificially constructed human things? I don't know if I think that's the right way to use it. And I think I tried to think about it like Antarctica, where like we've kind of decided in the last century and a half as a planet that Antarctica is special because it's difficult to get there. It's austere. It's kind of terrible there. <laughs> like you better be really well equipped and well trained if you're going to go and hang out there for any period of time. But you can go. You can go for tourism. You can go see some penguins. You can do science. You can live there for a few months at a time with the right supplies and planning and do experiments. And I think that's how we should think about the moon. You know, we've all kind of agreed that Antarctica is its own thing. Nobody owns it. A couple countries have tried to lay claim to parts of it because they're the closest countries, but that's not like they're fighting over it. You know, we've all kind of agreed that like Antarctica is unique on this planet. And I think we should think of the moon as the same way. It's, it's an eighth continent. It's still part of earth. Nobody gets to own it. And so before we go up there and start trying to state claims and run roughshod, we should all sort of consider what it means to us. And as, I don't want to be like overly prescriptive about what we do to the moon or on the moon, but I do hope that people just take a step back and think about it and reflect on how important it has been and how meaningful it is before we try to transform it forever.
thank you for listening and i hope you'll continue to join us as we explore this question of will he will he, will he? Will he?